You may stand now, and we are going to read from the Scriptures. We're reading from Galatians chapter 5 today, verses 13 through 15. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13. Hear now the word of God. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your eternal, inspired word, which is given for our instruction, and we desire to learn from it today, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding, that you would bring this word to application to our hearts, that it would Uh, be of great uh, strengthening uh, in our lives today, that we would become those who use our liberty for that purpose that you have given it to us, to serve one another. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we return to Galatians this morning, brothers and sisters. We come back to this prominent theme of liberty. Paul is going to speak about this throughout Galatians as something that is very precious to the Christians, something that Jesus Christ has secured for us, and he is speaking here in our passage today about how we are to use that liberty. What is, what is this liberty to be used for? Why did Jesus Christ give us freedom? Going back to chapter 5, verse 1, this is one of the exhortations Paul gave us in, that, in this chapter. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. We have been set free from the enslaving corruptions of sin. We are set free from the judgment to come. We are set free from the doctrines and commandments of men that are outside of God's word. And, and this, is, this is described in Romans chapter 8 as a glorious liberty, the liberty of the children of God. What we have in Christ, the Bible says, is real freedom. And it's important as we learn about this freedom that we have that we are able to separate that in our minds from the false versions of freedom that are presented around us. What many modern Americans speak about when they use the word freedom is really better called autonomy. Being a law to yourself, that's what the word autonomy means. Freedom to do whatever you want. Freedom to think however you want. And this autonomy is going further than it ever has before, I think. That is arguable. Freedom for the modern man is not only freedom to do whatever you want, but it's freedom to define your own existence, And in one of the previous sermons on liberty in Galatians, I quoted the Associate Justice Anthony Kennedy in in his 1992 uh, opinion that he wrote, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. He 
gave this definition of freedom, which is so radically contrary to what the scriptures present when it speaks about freedom. Listen to what he wrote. He says, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, far from defining our own existence and the meaning of the universe, it is the living God who defines the meaning of our existence. It is the living eternal God who defines the meaning of the universe. We have nothing to do with any of this. We are creatures made in his image, and as Christians we are redeemed and we're set free, but we don't have the right to define our own existence. We don't have the right to define the meaning of the universe. Who are we to define such things? That's tiny Small creatures define the meaning of the universe. Well, of course, it's this kind of worldview that has led to such destruction in our culture, that led to such a terrible decision in 1992 in that Supreme Court decision. And so it's important for us as Christians, as disciples of Christ, that we understand what it means to be free, truly, since Jesus says, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed or truly. And to set that against this false definition of freedom, which is in fact not freedom, it's in fact a form of slavery. Liberty, according to the Bible, is to be set free from our biggest problem, our enslavement to sin, our enslavement to the devil, and our facing the judgment of God to come. Liberty is not to be living for our idol of self and its passions, but freedom is to live to God. Freedom is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what our purpose is that God made us for. And so we're set free to to do what he made us to do. Now the Lord Jesus Christ, this passage says, has made you free for a particular purpose. The question is now, what will you do with your freedom if you are indeed free? Will you use that freedom for the purpose that Christ ordained it for? which is to love and serve one another. Now, during the Reformation period, uh, this issue of Christian liberty was a very important matter, just like the doctrine of justification was an important matter. The issue of Christian freedom was an often discussed topic, and it made sense because people in that day were very much enslaved to all of these uh, man-made rituals. They were enslaved to the fear of death and judgment. They didn't have a lot of assurance that they were free from such things under the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And during the Reformation, Martin Luther wrote a very brief book. He called it The Freedom of the Christian Man. And the very first sentence of this book is a fascinating sentence because it sounds contradictory, but it gets us thinking about what it means to be free. Listen to what Luther wrote about Christian freedom. He said, A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. How do those phrases come together? It's a fascinating way to think about it. He's saying you're free from all of these entanglements of human doctrines and bondage to to human lords, and yet you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are indebted to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so we need to consider the implications of this freedom. And so we will go in uh, passage by passage today, but I, I do have the first point for the children in your notes. Number one, we are set free from sin to become servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the Bible actually says you are set free to be a slave of Jesus Christ and thus indebted to love one another. So let's begin here with verse 13, uh, Paul's call again to liberty and his warning about misusing it. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. As I've grown up in a few different church contexts, I've observed different conversations about this idea of Christian liberty. It's something that we do talk about from time to time. And each of us have different backgrounds. Some of you, of course, have come from households that were not Christian at all. You grew up in completely unbelieving households. Others of you may have grown up in Roman Catholic backgrounds or uh, reform backgrounds or, in some cases, fundamentalist Baptist backgrounds. I know there's a few of you in that have, that have that background. And if we think about some of these different uh, manifestations of Christianity around us, we know that they think about liberty in different ways. Sometimes we have picked on the fundamentalist Baptist movement because it can be an example of uh, picking a few lists of specific externals and saying you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, and if you don't do all of those things, you are indeed a faithful Christian. And that may be somewhat of a caricature, but we've probably seen that kind of thing from time to time. Well, I would tell you that we need to remember that none of us are immune from that kind of simplistic thinking. Uh, None of us are immune from setting up a list of standards that we define and then imposing it upon other people as a test of Christian faithfulness. And indeed, we can violate Christian liberty in a a number of different ways. We can violate it when we create our own list that is not defined by the word of God and we make judgments about other people based on our list that we have defined. And indeed, legalism is a real spiritual risk. The Bible does teach that Christian liberty involves liberty of conscience, that our consciences are not bound to what other people think. Our consciences are bound to the word of God and the lordship of Christ. This is a great blessing that our consciences are not to be bound to all the different opinions of different people. We would be constantly tangled up and it'd be impossible to know what to do if we were subject to the opinions of every single person around us. That would be just a dizzying array of requirements and one person would say, don't do this. The other person would say, do this. And And we would be so confused. But thanks be to God, our our consciences are to be bound to a single, uniform, absolute, and infallible standard, which is the Word of God. Our Confession of Faith has some wise statements on this, and I do want to read to you a few of the, the quotes here, because there's a lot of helpful guidance for us as we think about Christian liberty. This is in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20. Here's what it says about conscience, our conscience is being set free. It says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, 
which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Now what this statement is seeking to safeguard for us is something that the Roman Catholic Church in that time had very much violated and in some ways certainly still does to to bind people's consciences to do things that are not found in the word of God and sometimes contrary to the word of God and to do so as a matter of Christian faithfulness. It was a very serious error. It was damaging to people's souls. And so we are warned about this. We are not to create all of our lists of externals and to seek to impose them upon other people as a matter of whether they are going to follow Christ or not. We have a sufficient word that tells us what our Lord Jesus wants us to do. So that's one risk, is we could create lists, we could be externalistically minded, we could be legalists in that sense. We're adding to the commandments of God. But there's another risk that Paul actually gives more attention to. Uh, And in some ways, it is simply the opposite uh, pole of legalism itself. And sometimes we call this problem the problem of license. Using your freedom as an excuse to indulge your sinful flesh. That's what Paul warns against. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. This has long been a danger of how people think about Christian liberty. And that's why Paul warns against it. Even back in New Testament times, you have examples of people that took the grace of God and they perverted it, they twisted it as an excuse to continue in a life of sin. For example, Jude chapter 3, he warns against the false teachers that had crept into the church. And what does he charge them with doing? Jude 3 and 4, it says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lewdness. And deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They took the promises of God's grace, these promises of forgiveness and freedom, and they said, that's a great doctrine, we like that, we're going to use that in order to all the more continue in our sinful, destructive pattern of life into licentious behavior. In 2 Peter, Peter says the same thing. He said there were these teachers, they promised liberty, but they themselves were slaves of corruption. They weren't free, even though they claimed that they were. And so we need to think about our concepts of Christian liberty. How how do you think about your freedom in Christ? What do you use it for? What is predominant in your mindset as you consider this? We must be on guard against any excuse that we use to cherish or practice any sin in our lives. That is not Christian liberty. That's actually the next paragraph of the Confession of Faith. It gives this very helpful warning. It says, 
They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust do thereby destroy the end or purpose of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And so what they're saying here is exactly the same kind of thing that Paul is saying. You've been given freedom, but it is a misuse of your freedom to use it as a justification for any sin in your life at all. And so we need to think about our concepts of Christian liberty. I I gave a list last time about this. What does Christian liberty not mean? I listed five things. Christian liberty is not the quote-unquote freedom to practice or cherish any sin, which is in fact slavery, the Bible says. Christian liberty is not, quote, the freedom to think however I want. Our, 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 Our thoughts are held captive to the word of God. Christian freedom is not the freedom to do whatever I want because we've been bought with a price. We are the servants of the Lord and we are to do what he tells us to do. Christian liberty is not, quote, the freedom to disobey any lawful authority that God has established in the family or in the church or in the state. We don't have an excuse for that. We are to submit to these institutions that God has given us when they give us lawful commands. Fifthly, the freedom to seek one's own interests. We don't have the freedom to do that either. Uh, We are told to no longer seek our own interests, but in humility consider the interests of others greater than our own. And so let's test our concepts of Christian liberty. I have been a participant in many conversations where as we talk about Christian liberty, what I find is we talk predominantly about how we get to do certain things that other people can't do. And I wonder in those conversations whether we're thinking about the right emphasis as we talk about Christian liberty. Sometimes as as Reformed Christians, we talk about the things that we can do in contrast with some other church tradition where they uh, ban this or that or outlaw this or that, and, and that could even become very wrongly a matter of pride for us. And I would say that we're not very mature in our thinking if we're predominantly talking about how we can drink alcohol or how we can watch a particular film as if that is simply a matter of Christian liberty. There's a few risks involved with those kinds of conversations. One is that we need to remember that we can abuse any aspect of Christian liberty and it can actually be an occasion for our lust and for our sin to grow. We can talk about our liberty to drink alcohol and we could, at the same time, we could tip from a moderate use of alcohol into an abuse of it. We could make our brother stumble and so destroy our brother for whom Christ died. You might talk about your liberty to watch a particular movie, but what if that film is an occasion for you to cherish any lustful desire in your heart? You thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty that it was given to you for. And my purpose, brothers and sisters, is not to produce lists for you. I don't want to create a bunch of uh, lists of my own making to tell you all the things that you can and cannot do and to give you a thousand specifics. My question for us is, how are you using your, your liberty? 
Do you use your Christian liberty to pursue holiness with great zeal? Or do you use it to skirt the edges of sinful indulgence in your life? Do you use your freedom to indulge your self-focus? Or is your liberty being projected outward to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, to give of yourselves, to deny yourselves? That's what Paul's call is for us. Children, this is the second point in your notes. Christian freedom can never be used to be selfish. It can never be, uh, we can't use it for selfish ends. And so consider this, brothers and sisters. What is your life evidence? What is the predominant focus of your life? Is it a life of Christian service? A life of sacrifice? A life of self-denial? This is what our liberty is to be used for. So let's go on here to verses 13 and 14, where Paul is going to quote for us from the law, and he's going to apply it to our focus in terms of Christian liberty. He says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul here, he's quoting the law of God. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 19, which we read earlier. And we know that Paul has had many negative things to say about the law in terms of its improper use throughout Galatians. He's warned us about the curse of the law. He's taught us uh, that the law is a, a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. The law condemns us in our sinfulness so that we will not trust in our law-keeping, but that we will trust in our Savior alone. He said all of that about the law, but remember that he is now directing us to how we properly use the law of God, which in other contexts is called the law of liberty. And we are set free, uh, Paul says, from our life of sinful, selfish desires. That's what he said at the beginning of Galatians. If you go back to Paul's summary of the gospel at Galatians 1, 3 through 4, there's so much in that brief summary that is relevant for the rest of this letter He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what's described there is what did Christ come to do? He came to deliver us from this present evil age. Now what is that evil age, this evil age around us characterized by? It's characterized by a life of sinfulness. It's ruled by the prince of this world. It's characterized by rebellion against Almighty God. And I think we can quite accurately say that this present evil age is characterized by a love of self. So basic is that to our idolatries, isn't it? The love of self. Well, Paul says, Jesus came to deliver us from the present evil age with all of its sinful passions, including the love of self. And hence, now we come to the application of Leviticus 19, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you are free in Christ, you can actually do that. 
you can actually begin to grow in love for others. You can begin to think less about yourself and more about others. You can begin to be like the Lord Jesus Christ who did not consider himself. He gave himself up for us all. And so this love of self, we so need freedom from the love of self, don't we? In fact, Paul in Timothy chapter 3, he talked about how perilous the last days would be. And what did he begin his list with about the perilousness of people in the last days? Listen to what he said there, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Then he lists a bunch of other things that flow from the love of self. But this is, these are perilous times that we live in as we see that love of self just growing and growing and, and glorified and glorified around us. And we are to repudiate this, brothers and sisters. We are set free from this idol of self. I don't think it's a stretch to say from a historical perspective that there's never been a culture like ours that is seeking to self-define in so many different ways, to self-define and to self-fulfill. When it's proposed that you might choose amongst 66 different genders or just invent a new one, you know that the worldview of self-defining and self-fulfillment has gone absolutely insane around us. And this is the fruit of, of many false teachers. We think of John Paul Sartre back in the 1960s. He, he taught that human existence has no real meaning. There's no objective meaning to life at all. So what is the solution? Just define your own existence for yourself. We've seen the fruit of that thinking. And so now as we come to this very simple and straightforward command, we need to view this command to love your neighbor as yourself in light of how we have been set free by Christ. That's the context of Galatians 5. We live in a self-absorbed, self-oriented, and self-justifying culture, but Galatians is here, this 2,000-year-old letter, is so helpful for us to repudiate all of that false worldview that has so infected our thinking. Back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, you remember this key profession of faith that Paul made? He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So actually, self is dead in the Christian life, according to this profession of faith. In the spiritual sense, through union with Christ, Paul says, I'm dead, I'm crucified, I'm gone. Now Christ lives in me. I am a new man in him. I'm a new creation. I have new passions. I have new desires. I live for Christ. And so it is for all of us if we have put our faith in him. The old self is dead and we need to keep killing its remnants wherever it shows up. And we need to live for him. And part of living for him is loving our neighbor as ourself. Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, he he speaks of this fundamental identity matter. This is in a chapter actually on Christian liberty, on respecting one another's conscience convictions. And Romans 14 verse 7, he says, None of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. 
Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again and lived, rose and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, as you think about your life, if someone were to look at your life, they were to analyze it, what would they say is important to you? What would they find upon close examination? Would they find a life lived in reference to the Lordship of Christ? Would they find a life that has as its purpose the service to one another? Or would they find a life dominated by self, by the fulfillment of self, by the the goals of self? If we have been set free, we are called, Paul says, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now we can actually work off of our old background here. We're very good naturally at loving ourselves. Extremely skilled at it, aren't we? Work off of that comprehensive knowledge you have of the love of self, even as you repudiate it, work off of the knowledge of it, and apply it to how you treat others. Our Lord Jesus, of course, gave us the simple principle, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If we would but think of that principle, if we would put it into application, we would find its relevance would answer so many questions and bring such simplicity to what we need to do in our relationships with one another. And so that is the call that we are given here in chapter 14 chapter uh, verse 14. So let's think about a few of the applications that flow out of this if we are called to love our neighbor as ourself. Some things become rather obvious in our mind. Of course, we want to take the Ten Commandments. We look at the list of the Ten Commandments and that's going to define for us what it means to love. Uh, We know that the commandments of God are a summary that Jesus says is summarized in love God and love your neighbor. But we need to think deeply about this implication of loving our neighbor as ourself. Take, for example, the Eighth Commandment. We're told in the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. There's things that are quite obvious about that. We think, I'm not going to take anybody's possessions. I'm not going to steal a car. I'm not going to steal their money. That's a really basic application of the command, you shall not steal. But then do we, do we dig deeper into that? Do we think about its implications for Other things, like how we use one another's time. Do we steal time from one another? We we talked about that application recently. Do we steal from our employer by wasting our time on the job and not being faithful to our commitments that we've made? We become dishonest by that means, and we steal. We're not loving our neighbor as ourself. Or take the sixth commandment. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. It's obvious to us that this command forbids any physical harm, any murder of another person. But we know that our Lord Jesus calls us to drill deeper than that. He says you need to go deeper. You need to go right into the heart issues that are are part of applying this command. He's, He's, of course, saying you need to be perfect. You need to be mature. And so if we're going to do that, we need to think about how does the sixth commandment play into my relationships? Well, of course, our Lord Jesus says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you have murdered 
your brother. You violated the sixth commandment. And I find it noteworthy that in Leviticus chapter 19, when we come to this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, it is in the very context of whether we hate our brother, whether we bear grudges against our brother, and whether we go to our brother to seek reconciliation. That is the context of that phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at Leviticus 19, 17 through 18 again. I'm just going to read that for us. I'm reading from the ESV rendering. It has a few helpful phrases here. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see how relevant this phrase is for our relationships in the body of Christ. The simple command includes so much wisdom for us. It says that we are not to bear grudges against one another. We are not to uh, have this grudge and be unwilling to go to our brother to speak to them about the issue that is affecting our relationship. And then it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, think about it. Don't, don't you want somebody to come to you if they have a grudge against you and they're distant from you and they don't want to have a relationship with you anymore? You would want them to come to you to address the matter. You'd want them to work through these things. Will you not do the same in your own relationships? Children, this is the third point in your notes. God's law of liberty teaches us to love our neighbor as we want to be loved. So many failures of love come from us simply not applying this very basic and easy to understand standard. And so if you are free in Christ, let's apply this again to liberty, let's bring it back to that topic. If you are free then you have the freedom to do what Leviticus 19 says. You have the freedom to go to your brother. You have the freedom to speak in love about the issue that has affected your relationship, to let go of the grudge, to forgive, to reconcile. That is part of the freedom that you have. And oh, what beauty it brings in our relationships when we do that. You will see your relationships flourish when you walk in that love that Leviticus 19 describes. You will exercise your Christian liberty for the glory of God and you will experience the good effects of that liberty, peace of conscience, love flowing in harmony between your relationships. Now we see that this whole matter of Christian liberty is relevant to the issue of conflict because of what Paul says in verse 15. So notice his contrast. He wants us to serve one another in love, but the opposite of that, according to verse 15, is to bite and devour one another. How's that for phrases to describe relationships in the body of Christ? To bite and devour one another. Verse 15, he says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed. By one another. How we treat one another as Christians is one of the most important tests of our Christian profession. 
Are we those who have been set free from the corruption of this present evil age? Have we been delivered into the kingdom of God's Son? Are we free from these besetting sins of the present evil age where people just hate in their hearts, they don't reconcile, they slander, they gossip, they don't work through these things? Or are we set free? Are we alive in Christ? Can we work through these things? Can we restore relationships? 1 John chapter 3 gives us this very simple test. Obviously, there's nuances to think about the application of this test, but listen to 1 John 3 verse 14. John writes, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So John, he gives this very straightforward test. He says, you want to know whether you are no longer in a state of spiritual death. Do you want to know whether you have received the gift of the new birth in Christ? Do you love the brethren? It's so simple. Do you love the brothers and sisters for whom Christ died? Does that love express itself in real actions and real commitments? In contrast to that, Paul says, you could instead bite and devour one another. It's hard to think of uh, words that are more descriptive, pictorially, of what conflict looks like in the body of Christ. And we might wonder, Paul, is that a bit of a, uh, are you saying too much? Is this hyperbole when you say bite and devour? I, I haven't seen anybody literally doing that recently. Paul wants us to think about the evils of conflict between brothers and sisters when they treat each other like this. Anytime we find Christians in conflict seeking to do harm to one another by the common strategies of verbal attacks, gossip, slander, revenge, unforgiveness, we should be heartbroken that Christ's people are treating each other like ravenous beasts seeking to devour one another. How tragic is it when the Christian community is to be a haven of loving relationships becomes a den of destruction. And kids, this is the fourth point in your notes. Number four, we act like wild animals when we harm one another by unloving words or behavior. And I say like wild animals because that's exactly the kind of verbs that Paul gives us. He gives us a picture of these ferocious beasts fighting each other and one of them is going to bite the other and maybe even eat and consume the other if it is victorious in the struggle. What a sad thing to think about in terms of the Christian community being characterized by such behavior. Sometimes we... We say to our children in our home when we're reminding them about how we need to treat one another, I say, kids, we're not wild animals. We, we are human beings made in the image of God. And we're Christians, so we are being renewed in the image of God, and we need to act like it. We're not, we're not to be these, these uncontrolled uh, wild animals that are ripping at each other and hurting each other, and that is what Paul is warning us about. And it has such a sad effect upon the body of Christ when this is the characteristic thing going on. The Scottish pastor, John Brown, he talked about the the sad effects of such conflict. He said, conflict within the church prevents edification within the church and conversions from outside the church. How can we edify one another when we're trying to kill each other, verbally speaking? 
How can we see conversions taking place within the church when somebody shows up and all they end up witnessing is people fighting with one another? That's not an attractive message of reconciliation. It's not much evidence of it taking place. And so we need these words to shape our mindset about conflict. You know that any of us would be shocked if we walked into the foyer of church one morning and we saw a bunch of brothers engaging in an actual fistfight seeking to harm one another. We'd just be shocked, thinking, what is happening? What, what have we descended to that brothers are fighting each other physically? And yet the scriptures tell us that our words can be even far more damaging than that. A fistfight has never started a forest fire on its own, but James says that your tongue can start a fire that can burn down a whole forest. James 3, verse 5, he says, See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Do you have a conception of how much power you have to do destructive things within the body of Christ? I ask that not because we want that to be our aim, but because you need to understand the, the power you have to harm. You also need to understand the power you have to do good through the enabling of the Spirit of God as well. But we need to take seriously, more seriously than we perhaps have, the danger of our harmful words with one another. The way that we can bite and devour one another by our sinful speech or our sinful actions. Now, Lord willing, next week we're going to spend a little more time on the list that Paul gives called the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. But I want to just bring out for you one observation from that list that applies to our topic right now. Let me read the list to you and think about how this list speaks to our relationships in the body of Christ. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you notice on this list how many of these items, these sinful behaviors, are expressed in the context of conflict, hatred, contentions, Jealousy, selfish ambitions, dissension, outbursts of wrath. These are the things that we express when we bite and devour one another. These are the kinds of things we see when in conflict we do not work through things with love. And Paul says these are the works of the flesh. And so how unfitting is it if we are Christians, if we are those redeemed from this present evil age, if we are those that are new creations in Christ, if we are characterized by these things. To be characterized by this dissension and this contention, this hatred of our brother, it is unfitting in light of the freedom that Jesus Christ has brought for us. Now, if we take all of these things and we apply them to ourselves individually, 
you need to ask the question, how do I do in the context of conflict? How well do I do at this? We all know conflict is difficult. It's unpleasant. We don't want to do it. But how do you do when you come into that situation for whatever reason, whether you were the instigator or you were the offended or the mix of both, as often is the case? How do you do in that situation? If you answer that you do very poorly or you can barely do any of the things that the scriptures have commanded you to do, there's two possible answers in terms of why that is. One possible answer is is that you really aren't a Christian who has passed from death to life if you will not forgive, if you harbor hatred in your heart, and you will not begin to walk in the ways that Jesus has given you to do. When you're faced with a call to love, to forgive, to restore, to love your neighbor as yourself, and you just say, I cannot do it, I will not do it. That is not to walk as a Christian. Another possible answer is that you are a Christian and your love is very weak. And you need more love. You need to grow. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to do what otherwise feels impossible. You need to take the next step in the situation that you're in. If you're in that situation right now, there's biting and devouring happening. What are you going to do next if you're a Christian? You're going to take the next baby step in the way of peace. You're going to pursue peace. You're going to seek to love. You're going to seek to forgive. You're going to do good to the one who has harmed you. You're going to pray for that person. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to. So brothers and sisters, I ask you, what will you do with your freedom today? Will you seek to die to yourself and to live as a servant of Christ and truly love the brothers and sisters for whom Christ died? Or will you go on living for self? Is that the way that you will choose to live? Living for self. Living not in freedom, but in the bondage to self. But where Christians exercise this freedom for the purpose for which Jesus has given it, you will find a marvelous and harmonious community being formed. When we begin to use our freedom to in love serve one another, oh, it's going to be such a beautiful thing that we're going to see. And thanks be to God, we do see much of it. I don't want to speak as if I don't see any of it. I don't want to speak overly negatively. I have seen much love, much unity, much forgiveness, much harmony. But may it be that the Spirit of God showers upon us even more. And what glory it will bring to Jesus Christ when we as the body of Christ are characterized by this this loving forgiving, reconciling service for one another, rather than the biting and devouring thing. There's plenty of examples that people can find. Go to any other context, any other community of the world, you'll find plenty of biting and devouring. But it ought not to be so in the church of Christ. It ought to be that we are those that walk by the Spirit of God, not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And we are those who are set free, set free to love, just as Christ has loved us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the freedom that we have been granted through Jesus Christ our Lord, and we are grateful that we need no longer be slaves to sin. Uh, With that result of that slavery just uh, bringing about death and judgment, no, no hope for the future, 
But instead, we are grateful that we are set free from sin's cursed and, and sin's enslaving grip. And we pray that we would never use our liberty for selfish ends or for sinful ends, but instead, we would use this freedom to love you, to love those you have placed around us. I pray that as a congregation, our love would grow and grow. And when we face challenges in our relationships, I pray that we would not bite and devour. May we repent of any manifestations of that, but instead we would choose the path of freedom, which is the path of love. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.